This is Basket Case Clubs, CPR Group's podcast where we turn basket case clubs into showcase clubs. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Basket Case Clubs. We're having a great time talking about situations where we've seen basket cases be real basket cases and sometimes when everyone's doing their jobs right, including us, we get to turn them into showcase clubs as well. Joining me as usual is Steve Connolly. G'day Steve. G'day Mick. Great to be back and talking about basket cases and showcases and it's funny when we're agreeing on what we're going to discuss during a podcast episode and there's such a long list of things about which we could talk and clubs about whom we could whinge. Uh, but today we're talking a little higher up the line than club level and talking state sporting organisations and governance frameworks across the country, which is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. It is, yeah. So I'd like to start with a story, Steve. Now, I don't know if I've told you this one, but it's one that has, you know, those stories, those things that happen when you're in a meeting and you go, this is interesting. I'm going to be dining out on this one for quite a long time. So Chris, one of our colleagues and I were sitting in a meeting with a, a representative from a state sports association here in Queensland. It was canoeing. Now, canoeing is an interesting sport because there are parts of canoeing that are part of the Olympics. So it's an Olympic sport. But this is, a, this is an organisation that was really struggling within itself to justify its own relevance in the market. Why do we even exist? Why do we sit here? We've got people on paddlecraft. Some of those people on paddlecraft are members of clubs. Some of those clubs, or probably most of those clubs, are members of a state association, which is then a member of a national federation as well, which is then a member of an international federation. So there's that structure and the framework that goes, in this case, all the way up to the Olympics. But when you're sitting at the side of a lake or a river or a creek with a bunch of friends that you've organized on social media to go on an outing, to go on a paddle down a creek or up a creek, why do we need to have a body to which we report and to whom we send money? What, what, what's the necessity of that? I've, I've got a craft. I've got my craft on the roof of my car and I've taken it to where we're going for a paddle and we go for a paddle so why would I need to be involved in another organisation? And that was, a, that was kind of a, a turning point in that discussion, mainly because no one could come up with a good, simple answer. Mm. And don't we live in a changing time too, when we've seen over the last 15, 20 years odd that we've been doing this work, a pretty significant shift away from traditional team-based sports, you know, training once or twice a week, turning up to a game on the weekend, more to individualised participation and getting sport when I want it. So if I want to turn up on a Saturday morning to park run, I will. If I don't, or if it's raining, or if it's cold, or if there's a pandemic stopping me from doing so, I don't. So, uh, you know, we've also seen continually a big shift towards gyms, CrossFit, um, you know, personal trainers operating from parks. And that's something to which we've been exposed through our work with councils. And, you know, how do we manage the use of public space by commercial operators like personal trainers? But again, it highlights this change away from, uh, you know, a, a federated, really heavily governed model within which sport needs to be delivered more towards a system through which I just get what I want when I want it. And you've only got to look at the statistics in Australia to see which sports are the most popular, you know, which is always at number one, walking, walking. Yeah, walking. <laughs> now, do, I can say I do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> I did that when I got out of bed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> 
but it is it is the physical activity that most people in Australia, but well, it's the highest participation rate, physical activity. So when you go down the list then, before you get to organised sports, there are a number of individual, of individual types of activities. Who do you think was the first person to say, hey, 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 I want to race you to, to somewhere which is really far away, maybe even 42 kilometres away. 50 kilometres. But you can't have both feet off the ground at the same <laughs> if you, time. If you run, you're a cheat. I'm going to disqualify you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we digress. <laughs> but again, oh, there you go. Man. So it's competitive walking. It's an Olympic sport, uh, but plenty of people do it without, you know, that that participation needing to happen within a, a really formal sport governance structure. Yes. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that when we see walking at the top of the list, we're not talking about race walking. We're talking about literally walking. For God, it looks so hard on your hips too. You've raised a really interesting question there, which is what sort of role do they play in taking away some of the relevance of the structure that we've got? And at this point, we don't, we're not necessarily keen to get into a discussion right now about the federated versus the unitary model of sport. That's, that's a discussion that is going on and it's going to play its course. And it's it, the discussions that we've had about, amalgamations and mergers so that that stuff's going to happen but this is a slightly different take on it and it's one that we hear all the time when we sit in the middle and this is something that we talk about where because we sit with mum and dad volunteers so we get to be so in touch with what's going on on the field of seven-year-old sport but we also get to sit with the state and national bodies and with councils and with government who have a different, sometimes a differing opinion of where everybody sits. So I think that we've all got our opinions of who does what and whose role what is, but we don't necessarily have alignment of those all of all the way up and down. And so what we hear are the people at sports clubs and even big football clubs, so soccer clubs that have 1,200 playing members, will still hear the treasurer of that club question why they're sending money up the line why does the money go from here to the regional zone to the state association to the national body what are we actually seeing for that and how long how long will the answers will you get a pathway to the olympics and to the world cup and you get insurance matter and it's interesting in that there are a number of ways to look at this i'll call it a a problem or a challenge that when you look at it from a club perspective and all you see, as you just mentioned, is, you know, lots of money going up the line, so to speak. But then when we sit down with the powers that be, the you know, the decision makers and the executive leadership teams at state or national sporting organisation level, and we say, hey, where does all that money go? And they present a picture which makes a whole heap of sense. They say, well, you know, there's this cost over here. And sure, there's the big one insurance. And that's the easy way to get people to pay their fees on time is because if you don't pay your fees, you're not covered for insurance. But, you know, we know that a lot of that insurance isn't worth <laughs> as much as people probably think that it is. At that uh, time, though, Steve, we're in a room with 60 staff members who are all busy running the sport. So we can actually yeah. see what's going on. But does that level itself actually need to exist or, or do we have you know what may be some duplication in the system and and the same or similar costs being seen at state level across the country and and that's you know probably one of the questions that we're really keen to start the discussion on isn't it yeah definitely um just something that popped into my mind as you were talking about that was if I pay my rates, yet I don't read books, I don't have a choice to not contribute part of my rates 
to libraries. Councils mm. have libraries. It's the way that it is. Yet it seems to be more open to question. And it, and it was because you were talking about all of the people who are doing all of the work to, at, like at the centre of excellence. But I don't care about excellence. I just want to play mm-hmm. footy. Okay, but yep. that's still part of our journey and that's still part of what makes this sport whole nationally. So we understand, we understand a lot of that, but it's not necessarily really well communicated down the line. And I'd, let me give you some numbers here. This is fascinating and it demonstrates the difference between the haves and the have-nots. And as we said, we're not talking at this stage about the unitary model versus the federated model. It's about if we have a federated model, who should do what, how's, what, what is the purpose of having the different levels? Or if we have a unitary model, if we've got one national association and then we have state councils, why? What, what do they actually do? And even if we've got one national body, how do we answer that question to the treasurer of the 1200 strong football club why do I spend money up the line? Wouldn't it be nice to have a great answer to that question that isn't just made up and isn't fear tactics? Because just to say you don't get insurance yeah. is fear tactics. And can't, can't, can't I buy insurance? I mean, in, in our office just downstairs, we've got people who sell insurance. They sell it to us. They've sold it to our clients. Yeah, mm. I can get insurance. Okay, it might be a bit more money, but is it still going to be the hundreds of dollars per player that we're sending up the line? Before I launch into that, though, uh, before I launch into these numbers, which are fascinating and somewhat somewhat funny, we don't yet have an opinion. So while we're questioning, while we're, I, I don't want to, I don't want to fan the flame of fear or hatred up the line because we do see it, we understand the value, but like everybody else, we don't have something that we can point to to say there, that is your answer. That's why these layers exist, and that's what they give you. Yeah, the comment that you made earlier about elite, you know, at the centre of excellence being the focus in some cases and not others, I think is is one that in a sport in which we're working right now with the state governing body and their focus is very much on supporting their clubs throughout, in this case, the state of Queensland. Their focus is on grassroots and getting more people into the sport and that includes great through club participation but also through schools and opening their sport up to more and more schools and then at the national level the the whole of sport plan for that sport is the vast majority of the document focuses on elite participation and you know the national body in that in their case gets the vast majority of the dollars that are pumped into that sport each year but because of the focus of their strategic direction it largely gets invested in elite sporting participation. So how does that work for the state governing body with which we're working and the other governing bodies around the country? And if there is to be this, you know, shift that we're seeing some sports traverse, which is from the federated model, state governing bodies report as separate legal entities reporting to and supporting the national governing body to more of a unitary model where we have less legal entities, whatever that looks like, we don't, necessarily know in any given sport but how do we balance that focus on elite with grassroots if there is to be a shift towards a a unitary sport delivery model and these are you know just we're just scratching the surface of some of the challenges that do get raised during the discussion when a sport's going through this transition so it's just something that popped into my mind that and, and that was really one of the first things when I sat down with, the, you know, the ELT at this state body, they said, yeah, 
what's really difficult is that we have a very different focus to the national body. And that was the first thing. That was the first discussion that we had, which was interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I'll let you go on with your numbers now. Well, it's a no, nice segue because the numbers are about that. They're about the investment that gets made. So when you look at, so let's, let's separate here between Olympic sports. And I'd like to quote some of these numbers come from a, an article that was in the Sydney Morning Herald in July 2020. So only a, a month or so ago by Roy Masters. And it was interesting the way that Roy's found these. Look, they're all published. But when you put them all together, it's like when we do an analysis of a, what was the last one? I did a rugby league club where I was able to show them a graph of their profit over time. And it was just going down and down and down and down. And over 16 years, the sum of all, you know, when you take the losses, loss years away from the profit years, the sum total of the amount of profit that that club had made, including grants over 16 years was $5,000. Over 16 years. Over 16 years. And, you know, and they're sitting there going, nah, that's not right. That's all right. That's a bunch of me. Yes, mate. That's not right. And and quietly had put their financial statements that they had adopted at their AGMs on the table. So when you map what everyone, what's available to us, but it's just a number in an annual report somewhere. But when you map that over time, it becomes fascinating. That's what, what Roy has done in this article. And he's compared professional codes so we'll, we'll take the pinnacle and in australia the pinnacle of professional codes is afl with the income that they generate predominantly from tv rights so that's where the money comes into afl and it gives them a different structure but then they've still got to manage that money they've still got to manage the structure and we've seen the, even the afl the the juggernaut sport in australia struggle when covid hit and they had to deal with the, the players who were some might say overpaid, but there was a market for it and that market will hopefully recover. But it was fascinating to see even that massive organisation struggle because they are at the top, followed fairly closely behind by the NRL. So then you compare those major professional sports in Australia, and but they have a grassroots level as well. So it's not like we're only seeing professional sport and then nobody else does it. This is professional sport that is fed by the kids who are very small, who are first donning a pair of footy boots and running onto the field at our local clubs all over Australia. And also feeds them. So we see a lot of top-down service delivery in the AFL and in the uh, in rugby league, in contrast to a lot of the sports about which I'm guessing you're mm-hmm. going to speak next, but also sports that don't have that huge income at the top level. So the likes of the world game, football or in Australia soccer uh, because they're the socceroos and I, I say that even though I'm a footballer yeah exactly footballeroos just doesn't quite have the same ring to it doesn't roll but, off the tongue no so and there, there we see a great outcome of uh, media attention on the national level of the sport resulting in money that can be fed back down the line to promote more grassroots participation, which in turn, you know, on the cycle means that we've got more kids feeding into the sport and greater talent developing up to the national level. So it's a positive perpetual cycle. It is, yeah. And it's different the way that football's funded. We'll get into this with our colleague Chris, obviously, but the funding model for football is very different from NRL and AFL in Australia. Mm. So then you compare those professional codes, particularly the big two. And look, cricket is there as well, but it's a bit of a hybrid, especially given the turmoil that they've had from a governance perspective over the last few months as well. And you compare Mm. them with the Olympic sports. Now, when I was in grade, I remember being in Mr. Elliott's class in grade four, the the Olympics was coming up and I was making little medals and, you know, singing the tunes of the Olympics. (laughs) 
I'll date myself if I say which Olympic Games it was. But it was so much fun and I, I just loved every minute of it. Now, the games are exactly the same as they were back then. But now I look at them and I go, this seems interesting. There seems to be a significant disconnect between the, the few people that I'm seeing at the elite level in all of these sports and what I see every day. So the, the Olympics, canoeing is one of them. Rowing is another one. Cycling. These are sports that have, that they are the have-nots, really. We've got the haves in the professional level and then we've got the have-nots. Now, it's different country to country and I'm not sure, you know, this will be an interesting little thesis for somebody on the other side of the, well, in this case, the Atlantic, for somebody to, to look at what happens in the States and to say, do we have underfunded sports in the States? But our 13 Olympic sports have a very different funding structure and a very different, unfortunately, governance model to the clubs and structures that, okay, admittedly, they are professional and they are corporate entities when we're dealing with AFL clubs and NRL clubs. But they still run as the same sort of businesses with a very similar product in that it is, it is sport. So when you take just four, and this is what Roy's done in this article, you take just four AFL clubs that have a combined revenue, just four of them, a combined revenue of $330 million in a year. And obviously this is a normal year. And that is 15% more than the top, than the 13 Olympic sports, top 13 Olympic sports combined. Just four clubs. Okay, that's money. And that money comes in and it does do a great job, as you mentioned before, of filtering down from the TV rights that come in down the pyramid. So we've got a, a building up of the base from the top down. But then we've also got the opportunity to have a look at the governance structures of those sports. In the governance structures at each of the AFL clubs, there's a CEO and a handful of board directors and they're elected or appointed to do their job because they've got good business sense. Then we go the other way around and the 13 Olympic sports that we're talking about have between them 107 CEOs and 921 <laughs> directors. This is oh, no, you got to say it again because I was laughing. Sorry, go on. The top 13 Olympic sports that we're talking about between them have 107 CEOs and 921 directors. <sighs> There's 13 sports, dude. <laughs> wow. So why is that? Well, that's because, wait for it, 13 sports, Steve, 124 separate legal entities. So when we've been having this discussion, it's like, let's imagine that we want to organise a sponsorship because we've got potential to develop, and I'm spitballing here, we've got potential to develop some exclusive relationship with a supplier for which there'd be a great kickback for our sport and our customers, our constituents, our members, the kids who are running around at grassroots level. You've got 124 signatures that you need to, to get. Well, it's somewhere mm. between 124 and 921 signatures that yeah. you need to get to make that happen. And that, that just, for people like you and I who work in organisations like these, we know how many difficult conversations are going to have to be had to affect change. We know how many strong personalities are going to need to give a little to you know, bring about positive decisions for development and innovation in the sport, even, you know, if we're not talking about changing anything in terms of how we're governed or how our sport is delivered, if we're just talking about some significant change, which arguably may very well be positive, there's going to be a real resistance to that just because of the number of people who are involved in that decision. Too many cooks in the kitchen. 
yep, they're going to spoil the broth. And unfortunately, we've seen them spoil the broth. When you yep. look at that from the grassroots level up, we see discontent. We see disconnection between what's happening but between the parents, their mums and dads who are getting onto the committees of clubs or they're not getting involved in the first case. They're, they're people who are saying, I, I love cycling. I love nothing more than getting out early in the morning and doing a 60K ride. And I'm very happy to do that every day. But do I want to do that with a structure underneath me? Well, I would if they could only get their act together. And, and that's unfortunate. And then you see that sort of turmoil go through boardrooms. Where A great example of this is the recent turmoil is probably an understatement with what's been going on at Equestrian Australia. That's one of those sports that if they don't get their act together immediately, like right now, Australia won't have equestrian competitors at the Olympic Games when they get rescheduled next year. That's scary stuff. And that comes down to the level of mismanagement and the level of not necessarily the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was that plus the mismanagement plus everything just going wrong in a bad structure. So the, the so can I just quickly jump in there? We've, we've got, when we talk about 124 legal entities across 13 sports, that means, you know, a lot in the order of almost, you know, an average of 10 entities per sport what really frustrates me is this just undercurrent of us and them. There's, there's, we hear so much in the way of stories about, oh, well, Queensland and Victoria and New South Wales have agreed on this, but you know the Northern Territory and WA are very much in disagreement. Hold on, we're doing the same sport. Why can't we talk about what's best for the sport across the entire country rather than what's best for our state entity? And I think that that's one of the most frustrating things for me because so often that discussion holds a sport back from improving. There's, there's merit in it. So long as you're doing it for the right reasons and I'm not teaching you how to suck eggs, you know that if you're having a discussion that's challenging the normal, challenging the status quo, and in this case, NT and WA might be doing the right thing in challenging the strength of numbers that exists on the East coast. Mm -hmm. But if it's just to dig your heels in, because that's how we've always done it, then that just isn't good enough. And you can see that in Equestrian Australia recently being put into administration. <laughs> so yeah. apparently Sport Australia has said, no, nope, no more money for you guys. We just don't like the way you're doing it. Their turmoil has resulted in eight directors resigning in 16 months, including three chairs. Like that's a revolving door over, you know, not even a year and a half. You can't have any level of stability and you can't demonstrate relevance down the line to your constituent base if you can't get yourselves in order. Yeah, and it wasn't the situation there that only one director had actually been elected one remaining director had actually been elected by the members yeah i think with the resignations and as you say the revolving door and appointments to the casual vacancies there was only one director who'd actually been popularly elected and the rest had been appointed yeah and the the structure isn't right so we've got all of these all of these people mums and dads who have spent a lot of money on horses and riding lessons and participate themselves and have their kids participate who have no say in the direction of, of their sport. Now that's, I'm all for having the right people elected and then letting them provide the direction, but who decides who the right people are? And in Mm. Equestrian, it's not necessarily in the right place. The voting power doesn't come down to the people who uh, exist on the ground. And this is where the professionalism versus the amateurism in sport sometimes gets questioned to say, if we appoint and elect a whole heap of skills-based people to our boards, 
and Steve, you and I are well supportive of that. But does that mean that there's, we're building in a level of disconnection from what we do? We're building in disconnection from our grassroots sport because the people that we're putting in might have been great in the hotel industry and in aviation and engineering in medicine and law. But what do they bring when it comes to hockey? Yeah, and I think there's a balance that can be struck there with typically there are people in most sports and obviously this depends at the pool of people from whom we're drawing so how big that pool is so obviously at the club level it's going to be a smaller pool than it is at state or national level but in in our experience there are typically people in a sport who are capable of doing a very good job in the governance and setting the strategic direction of that sport but often because of the the other way to fill a board which is representative you know so we've got a, a regional or state organization and the the board or management committee of that organization are made up of representatives from people across the state for example and one of the big challenges there is that we've got people who are probably really already busy at their own level whether it's club or regional and then they're being forced because of the representative system to go and be involved in the governance at the state level, for example, and they're not necessarily the best person for that job, but they're there because we've got to have an equal voice from across our state. And in my experience, there might be people who are abundantly capable of doing a really good job at the state level, but they're not put into those positions because the structure doesn't provide for them to be there just purely based on skill set or experience yeah but rather on representation and i think that that's a huge shortcoming in a lot of these organizational structures however because we're always talking about people here we do really commonly see or hear that argument oh well you know we've got to have even representation otherwise we might not get our way or or you know the big clubs or the the big geographic areas might and obviously in Queensland, I'm pointing to Southeast Queensland there. And, and often there's a lot of merit in that challenge that's thrown to the Southern, you know, counterparts from the Northerners who say, well, there's a lot less in the way of facility delivery up here in a lot of sports, but it's not necessarily the case that we need to have people there with a club or local hat on because all we're going to do is perpetuate potentially that us and them mentality and have a group of people coming together to sit around the board table to fight about what's in it for me. Rather exactly. Than how do we grow? What's in it for What's us? in it for the sport? Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the representative model instills that and perpetuates it, like you said. Yeah. Only very recently I was working with a multi-sport organisation. In fact, it's a, a, a club that is formed from a number of separate sporting organisations that have uh, are on the journey to amalgamation and will become one multi-sport organisation. And they're in regional Victoria and the the mindset very much was, oh, well, you know, we've got to have representation on this new sport management committee from each of the sports. Otherwise, how will we possibly have our sport represented and have our say and make sure that the decisions that are being made by this multi-sport organisation are going to suit us? And, and absolutely, while I can see the merit in that, again, as I said earlier, what we're potentially doing is putting people into a job that is you know, additional to the work that they're already do, already doing to administer their sport and saying, well, you have to be here to represent your sport, even though I might not really care about the other sports. I just want to do a good job of administering mine. Mm. So again, I don't have an answer here, but it, it's certainly another one of those challenges that 
we come across quite regularly. And it's a discussion, again, in the same way that when we discussed amalgamations and mergers needing to follow your journey, this is probably another one of those examples where we really need to remove as much of the emotion as possible, which is really difficult because we're humans and we're emotional beings. Uh, Remove as much of that emotion from the discussion as possible and talk about what's best collectively for these sports, what's best collectively for our sport across the state or the country. And that's really difficult for a lot of people to do. So before I launch into our two pieces of, of advice or suggestions for you to try between now and next time, I'd like to launch an idea that we've been talking about that is hopefully going to find some answers to the questions that we've posed today. So in you know, we've been doing this for more than two decades. So we've seen a lot of the same things floating around, a lot of the same questions floating around. And unfortunately, I don't think that government is getting us any closer. I think that Sport Australia, while they're doing a great job in modernising the sports governance principles, we're still dealing with the same problems. Can we find a way that short circuits some of that whinging and moaning that happens on the ground by finding some genuine answers? We might, not, we might not like the answers that we find, but there'll be answers. If we find that there are, there are answers that, are, well, actually, there is no relevance to this level. There is no role for anyone to play at this level. That might be an answer that a lot of people don't like. But then they can make a decision to either retain or get rid of that level, knowing that that's the answer. And if they decide to retain it, they're deciding with eyes wide open and they might change their operation or change their purpose so that they build relevance back in. That's really what we're hoping. So we're, we're really looking forward to having this discussion on a regular basis. And we'd love to hear from you if you've got ideas, if you've got suggestions, if you've got some of the answers, if you think you know why our middle management exists, even why our upper level management exists, because we're all part of the same planet. We're not playing intergalactic football yet. So we're all on the same planet. So our international structures could have more to give in providing some guidance in the best way to run our sport all over the globe, rather than just in Europe or even just in Amsterdam. You know, how does it work in Albury? How does it work in Quilpy? How does this work in, in our neck of the woods in a way that works for us? Or we'd also love to hear from you if you've got more of a bitch, if you've got something else that really bugs you about stuff that you're sending up the line. So it depends on your perspective. So let's start with our first piece of advice is targeted to the people who are in clubs. If you're in a club, I encourage you to make a list of the things that you think or you feel. Now, this is a thinking and feeling exercise, so you don't need to go and do the fact finding. We're not back at at high school now. Make a list of the things that you think or you feel that you get from further up the line. Get, you know, what what is it? What's the value that we receive for the money that we, we spend up the line? Do that honestly and be honest with yourself to say these are things that we get by spending money up the line that we could not get anywhere else. So if you've put insurance on the list, why don't you make a phone call and, and see if there's a broker who could get you insurance from elsewhere? Now you might, you might, and this could be a good thing, find that you can't get that anywhere else. And then that definitely goes on the list. But what goes on the list for you? For me, it would be the ability to wear this shirt, the ability to play this game. But I'm seeing the intrinsic value of sport because, well, I've been working in sport for more than two decades. So, I, so I've seen that but it's still very hard for me to quantify that, to sell it to somebody else. So how do you do that 
for yourself. So then we take the other side of it. And if you're involved in a, re in, in a zone, in a regional association or a state or even a national body, or if your role is with a council or a government agency, I don't want you to go the other way and start to dig your heels in and say, well, the value is this and we provide this and we provide this because all that's going to do is just tell people things that they might not listen to. I'm more interested in your questions. So what are the questions that you've got that you would love to know the answers to? If you've got a moment, send us an email, follow us on social media and post it there and let us know what you think. But even if you just do this as an exercise for yourself, by having clarity over the questions that, that you don't know the answer to about your own relevance can help you and your staff and your board get on a more productive journey to, to defining the answers to those questions. Gosh, I'm looking forward to hearing those questions come in. So watch this space over the next few months. This, this will be a, a fairly hefty project for us to get into. We've got opinions, but we're going, as all good research people should, we're going to take a more scientific approach and make sure that we're looking for answers that, uh, to the right questions, whether we like them or not. So if you have yet to follow us on social media, you can certainly do that. You'll find us at CPR Group on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll sign up for our newsletter on our website. Steve, as usual, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you about another topic that's close to our hearts and another thing that gets us a little bit agitated and having some fun. <laughs> Always good fun. Yes, thank you for the opportunity, Mick. And I look forward to connecting and having a good old chat again next week. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Cheers.